this is our last session for the uh, for the camp. And so hear God's word from Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this calling that you have put upon us to be kings and priests. And you have repeatedly told us that we are a royal priesthood. And you've demonstrated to us how you want us to grow and mature. So I pray that for all of us here, that these things strike us to the heart, that we are uh, encouraged and convicted and uh, propelled by this desire to please you and to, uh, to live up to that calling. So, Father, guide us now. Help us to focus. Help us to pay attention. Deliver us from all distraction and error, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every family probably has a story of one event that changed everything. You probably, in your family or in your broader family's history, have something that rocked your world, that completely changed your entire family history and the trajectory of your family story. It could have been a death of a loved one, uh, a house fire, a car accident. It could have been a diagnosis of a disease that you would have to live with for the rest of your life. Um, it could be a happy thing, uh, uh, an unexpected birth, or uh, dad or mom gets a new job, or you move to the uh, other part of the country, you get a new house. These big events, though, serve as signposts or gateways or doorways into a new realm of existence, a new way of life, a new world. And these doorways are often and almost always one way. Once you walk through the door of this event that happens, once this big benchmark event takes place, you walk through the door and you can never walk back through. You can never get back to where you were before. So if that big event was the birth of a little brother, you're now a big brother. You're now a big sister. You can't undo that. You can't, even though you might wish you could, you can't walk back and say, uh, I'm, I, this is life as it was before you were born. No, we walk through the doorway, and these are one-way doorways that we move through, and now we have a new reality. This is a new normal. You can't go back even if you tried. Transition times like this, whether they're good or whether they're bad times, whether they're happy providences or whether they're bitter providences, these transition times are always crisis times. Whether they're good or whether they're bad, they're crisis times. Every transition presents a kind of crisis. Even good transitions, moving to college, getting married, having a baby, old things get broken up. Old relationships are rearranged, and things get put back together in a new way, and everything changes. Now, we've been studying the transformation of Israel through three periods of history, from the priestly period to the kingly period to the prophetic period of their history. And we've watched how that kind of overlaps our own story. We start out as priests, and then we grow up to be kings, and then one day we'll be prophets. Every transition through biblical history, every time Israel goes through a transition, it is attended by a great crisis. 
Israel was born as a kingdom of priests out of a great crisis, the a bondage in Egypt. They were born through blood and tears and wailing and gnashing of teeth and plagues. And they were baptized in the Red Sea. And they were brought through very literally a new birth into uh, the, the wilderness where they were going to progress and take the land that God had, had given them. Just as your own birth was attended by cries and tears and wailing and gnashing of teeth as your father tried to figure out, how am I going to pay for this child? I don't know how we're going to do it. Obviously not. You were loved. I'm sure every one of you were just such a beautiful little precious blessing that there were no worries about your development or health at all. No, none of you were worried over. None of you were prayed over. Of course, no, every human birth presents a, a time of crisis, a time of change, a time of great transformation. It was no different for Israel. When they were born, they were born out of a time of great crisis. And God establishes them as a kingdom of priests. And immediately when he does that, they fail. They fall right away. They make a golden calf and they worship it while Moses is up hearing from the Lord at the top of the mountain. Well, they wander in the wilderness, and they are established in the land, they grow up as a kingdom of priests, but then when it comes time to transition to the kingly phase of history, that's not a smooth transition. That, that, that doesn't go seamlessly. The people want a king way before it's time for them to have a king. They cry out, they grasp, they claw, they, they demand a king, and they reject Yahweh's kingship over them, and they reject Samuel's leadership over them as a priest, and they ask for a king. And of course, they get Saul. Starts out well, but very quickly, he rebels, and he's full of pride and arrogance and disobedience. And the transition from the priestly phase of Israel's history to the kingly phase comes with, with terror and wailing and gnashing of teeth. There's all this trouble and tribulation as we, as we transition from one phase of maturity to the next. These transitions are difficult. They're complicated. They're full of temptations and full of opportunities to mess up and sin. And then when we move from the kingly phase to the prophetic phase, guess what? No surprise, that too is a painful transition. That's a crisis time. As the kingdom dissolves and as the prophets take their role and take their place in Israel's history, it comes with the northern ten tribes being liquefied and going into captivity in Assyria and the southern tribes lasting just a little bit longer, but they end up in Babylon. This is a time full of heartache. This is a time full of difficulty. This is a time full of crisis. The prophets lead us now from here, but things will never be the same. And you can't go backwards. You can't move backwards from the prophetic to the kingly. You can't move backwards from the kingly to the priestly. We're only moving one direction. History only goes one direction. You can't go backwards. And every transition is full of crisis. So if transitions from stage to stage of maturity for God's holy nation, if those transitions are full of crisis and calamity, is it any wonder that as you grow up and you are transformed from being a priest to being a king, is it any surprise that those transitions are full of temptation and calamity and crisis and trouble? Is it any surprise that these transitions for us are confusing and complicated and difficult. 
Absolutely. It's certain that that's exactly what we're all experiencing. As we go from priestly, kingly to prophetic phases of life, these are crisis times. These are confusing times. Lots of opportunities to mess up. Lots of chances to fail. And lots of opportunities to do something really amazing as well. So you are either entering or in the middle of one of the most complicated periods of your life. You are going through an incredible transformation. As you are faithful priests, you at your age are right on the cusp. If you already haven't dipped your toes into the kingly phase of life, you are right there. And this is a crisis time for you and for your parents. I heard another pastor say this to his son, and I used it, and I've used it with my kids, and particularly my daughter. This is what he said to his son. He said, I've never been a father to a 16-year-old boy before. Never. I've never been to a father to a 16-year-old boy, and you've never been 16 before. This is new for both of us, brand new. And I say this to my daughter. You, you've never been 16 before. This is, all of this is new for you. And guess what? I've never been a father to a 16-year-old daughter before. This is new for me as well. And it's new for your mother. This is new for all of us. We're entering together, father, mother, daughter. We're entering as a family into uncharted territory for all of us. It's complex. It's difficult. And so we would expect there to be trouble. We would expect there to be opportunities to fail and to fall and to pick ourselves back up by the grace of God, uh, be forgiven and to love each other and go on to the next phase. So, so this, is the, this is the thing. God is growing us up, father, mother, child. God is growing us up through these transitions. He's growing us up together. He's teaching me new things about these phases of life, and he's bringing us all into maturity together. And that's the goal. And, and if you don't hear me say anything, I want you to just, just take away just a few salient points of everything I've said so far, and that is the goal of your life right now is maturity to press on to maturity, to grow up, not to stay children, not to stay babies. Walk through those doors and don't try to keep a foot back here as you're being dragged out of adolescence and childhood into maturity. Walk through those doors and own the new phase of life that you are being brought into. We were talking at breakfast. A few of us were talking, and I've, I've talked to some of you about this before, and some of the men were talking this morning, and it's this repeated theme. I know people, and you know people, in our churches and in our families who miss these major benchmarks of development in their lives. Of course, most of us adults, when we were 16, the first thing we did and wanted to do was get a driver's license. That's just, that's what you do. You want that independence. You want that ability to take care of your own business. You want to be a help and be able to run errands and go to work. And if, if at 16 you haven't already had a summer job for a while, it's time to get one so that you can buy gas and so that you can help pay for insurance and these types of things. So it's expected of you when you turn 16, at least it was when I was in high school, and I would say for all of the adults here, 
It's just expected you give her a driver's license. That's just what you do. And then you've got a couple of years there and you're looking to what, what am I doing after high school? What am I doing after I'm done with this, this phase of my education? And you take on some education or you go to work and you get married and you start having children. These, these benchmarks, it's like they're dominoes that, that once you tip over the first one, the rest just kind of, they just kind of line up and they just sort of happen by God's grace. They all, they all just sort of fall into place. But you know people and I know people who never tipped over that first domino. And now they're 26, 28 years old, living at home. They don't have a driver's license. They don't go to work. They're not studying anything. They really haven't done anything since fifth grade, except play Minecraft. None of the kids are laughing. <laughs> they're really good at Minecraft. Um, they're really good at Googling things, I guess. Um, but they really don't have any life skills because, because they've never taken seriously the, the directive and the demand for them to grow up, to move on, and to mature. And so what I want to impress upon you, I want you to hear some adults say in your life, it is an expectation of, of our generation upon you that, that you grow up that you mature, that also we need to own this, our generation needs to own this, that there are, are obviously things that we haven't done and obviously mistakes we've made to make you feel insecure about taking on responsibility. Maybe we've sheltered you too much. Maybe we've given you too much. Maybe we haven't pushed you out the door enough as, as a mother bird kind of pushes her babies out of the nest. You say, that's so cold and so cruel. Maybe they'll die. I, maybe. Maybe they'll fall. Maybe they'll fly. But you got to push them out of the nest. And so that's, that's, that's what I'm going to wrap this up with today as we, as we look at this kingly phase in just a minute uh, of, of the prophetic phase. I just read the book of Revelation, just a little section. There are a couple of times in the book of Revelation where God has, has declared us, we are priests and kings. And last time when we were together, I talked about what it means to be a faithful priest and how that prepares you to rule and now to have the responsibility to be a king. So let's talk about that next phase of life that you're making your way toward. Fraught as it is with complexity as confusing and as difficult as this time is, what is required of you as a king or a queen to rule, to take responsibility, to, man to manage and to master something? Well, I want to flip back to uh, 1 Kings and when uh, that uh, great passage where uh, the Lord asks Solomon, what does he want? Let's hear from uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, the word of the Lord from verse 4. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and an uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him. And you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Yahweh, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. And this is Solomon speaking. Listen to what he says. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. I'm going to continue reading from there, but I want to stop right there. What does he just say? 
I, he's a grown man at this point, right? He's got to be about 40 years old. And he says, I'm a little child. I don't know how to go out or to come in. He's admitting that he is not mature. That he's admitting that I don't have wisdom. I don't know how to enter a room. I don't know how to walk out of a room. I don't know what you do when you come into a place full of, of royals and magistrates and princes and, and princesses and queens and kings and lords and ladies. I don't know how to conduct myself. I don't know how to go out or come in. I don't know how to, I don't know how to hold my hands. I, I don't know what to say. I don't, know the, I don't know the cordialities. I don't know the protocol of interacting with other royals and other people. This is something that kings have to know. This is something that kings have to grasp. This is wisdom. And right off the bat, King Solomon says, I don't know this. I don't know how to do this. And there's some of these subtleties that are built upon the foundation of what faithful priests do. And we talked about last night, I, I kind of lay the foundation of this is what a faithful priest does. What was the most, one of the most important things a priest does? What do they have to do with? Boundaries. And a king builds upon that foundation and understands and, and applies what he understands about boundaries to social interactions. And he applies that to um, conversation. So that a king understands, if everyone's having a nice, quiet conversation, I don't bust up in the room and say, Hey, everybody, I saw a big old frog out there. It's about this big. He's eating a, 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 a dragonfly. Like, we were just talking about my mother's illness and it was a quiet conversation and you just busted up here like a big fool. You know, it, the, the, the wise king knows how to go in and out of a room. He knows how to, how to read the room and he knows how to, how to be sensitive. And he knows if the, if the party's loud and raucous, Hey, I can be loud and raucous. And if the, if the conversation's quite quiet and sober, I know how to be quiet and sober. I know how to respect other people's time. I know how to read the room and know that if I'm talking and people are kind of not listening anymore, maybe I need to get interesting or maybe I need to shut up. Maybe the thing that I'm going on and 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 on about is not really worth talking about. Maybe I need to reevaluate the way that I communicate. Maybe, maybe I need to consider, you know, the, the way that I come across and the way that I present myself to people. This is what, this is what King Solomon says. I don't know. I don't know these things. I need to be taught. And so what does the Lord give him? What is it? What does he ultimately ask for? He asks for, he asks for wisdom. So he says, I'm a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. The speech pleased Yahweh that Solomon asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked for this thing and have not asked for long life for yourself, you've not asked for riches, you've not asked for the life of your enemies, uh, but you've asked for uh, understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your word. See, if I've given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor anyone like you after you. Also, I've given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. What Solomon asks for is maturity. What he requests of the Lord is to help him grow up into a wise king, to be a fit ruler. 
Priests have to decide between right and wrong, clean and unclean. Is it leprosy? Is it not? What, what is this? Is this sacred or profane? Priests don't make judgment calls. Priests just say, this is right, this is wrong. Dad said, do this. Mom said, we're not allowed to do this thing over here. So that's what we do. Do we need to make a judgment call? No. Dad said, stay off the shed. So what are we going to do? We're going to stay off the shed. That's a rule. Kings, however, grow up and have to understand wisdom and, and know wisdom in order to discern between the lesser of two evils or between what is good and what is better. And so the very next thing that happens to Solomon after he asks for wisdom and he gets wisdom is that two harlots are brought before him. And one says, this is my baby. And the other one says, no, that's my baby. And Solomon has to decide what to do with them. Of course, he can't go to a book and see what Moses wrote about this. He has to already have had some character to know how to respond wisely and skillfully. So he says, bring me a sword and let me cut the baby in half. And that will reveal who the mother is. And of course, it does. The people marvel and they fear because they see that the wisdom of God is in Solomon to do justly. So in the priestly period of history, we have the law, but the kingly phase of history, we have wisdom literature, psalms, which take God's law and turn it into song. We have proverbs, which show us how to operate in a complicated world. It's, it isn't a simple world anymore, is it, when you start moving into the kingly phase of life? It's not so simple. It's more complicated. How do you know who is a fool? Who is a sluggard? Where is Lady Wisdom? Who is a rebel? Who is wise? Who is going to get me into trouble? Who is going to lead me down the path of destruction? Lady Wisdom, incidentally, is found among the elders, the company of wise people that you hang around with and listen to if you're a king. You hang around wise people and not, not fools. So we have the Proverbs. These are Solomon's uh, uh, little bits of, of wisdom to, to help us live skillfully. And I want to just dip our toe in just a few Proverbs. We read and repeated some in worship, um, but, but I want to just grab a few and just think about them and meditate on them for just a few moments. Proverbs 14, 15, and this is kingly wisdom. This is the kind of stuff we need to know if we're going to know how to come in a room and leave a room, if we're going to know how to operate and function as a, as a capable member of society, as, as grown-ups, faithful, godly grown-ups. Here's from Proverbs 14. The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. So the, the simple believes everything they hear. The wise think about things and consider them. The king is going to be able to discern between truth and lies. And there are a lot of lies. There are a lot of half-truths and a lot of manipulations. And the king is not gullible. The king is seasoned enough to know that when somebody comes at you with, with this hysteria, you don't have to get hysterical. When somebody comes to you acting like the world is on fire, you don't automatically have to take on and mirror their emotional state. We are slow to make judgments. Wise kings are slow to make judgments, not quick to jump on bandwagons, not quick to grab pitchforks when there's a new scapegoat that we're all going to now pillory and, and uh, uh, somebody we're going to crucify for this or that injustice. This is something that our generation today does so much of. It's, it's almost like every week there's a new outrage. There's something new that I'm supposed to be really angry about. 
There's something new that I'm just supposed to be so worked up about this thing or that thing. And a few days pass by and a few news cycles go and we all forget. We all forget what we were so outraged about. But because there's a new one, there's a new thing we're all supposed to get angry about. And the questions we have to ask is, okay, wait, wait, wait. What am I supposed to be outraged about? And who wants me to be outraged? Who wants me to be angry about this? And why do they want me to be angry about this? The wise are patient and they don't make snap judgments. We read this this morning, this proverb. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. Later in that same uh, chapter, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. How often have you heard one friend come to you and tell this elaborate story? And you're like, oh, that makes me so mad. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe this other person said that. And then you talk to the other person and say, no, that's not what happened. That's, that's not at all. But you were already worked up and you're loaded for, you know, uh, to execute the other friend just, to, uh, just because the first person uh, got you so worked up. The, the wise king is patient and listens. The wise king chooses his or her friends well. Solomon had a son, remember, who surrounded himself with, surrounded himself with fools, and they ended up tearing the kingdom apart. But in the Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 13, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. If you want to be a fool, the quickest way to being a fool is to hang out with fools. Make sure all of your friends are fools and you will be one. It'll, it'll just happen, just like draining a battery. You'll just stay with fools and you'll just get foolish and more foolish and, 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 and less able to think for yourself. If you want to stay a child, make sure all your friends are exactly your age. Don't ever pay attention to people older than you. Don't ever pay attention to people a little bit younger than you. Don't pay attention to little kids. Just stay with people your age and, and that's how you'll be, that's how you'll stay a child, and that's how you'll stay immature. If you want to be wise, you're going to have to spend time with the wise. You'll have to seek them out and look for opportunities to listen to them and to work alongside of them. The wise also learn how to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. And this also is something we talked about. Faithful priests do this, and this is just amplified for the, for the king. Proverbs 8. The fear of Yahweh is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way. God doesn't hate idolatry and perversion and arrogance because he's mean. God doesn't hate these things because he's a hater or because he's bigoted. He hates wickedness and idolatry and perversion and rebellion because they destroy us. He hates these things because they diminish the image of God impressed upon us. They kill fellowship with other people. They kill fellowship with him. They cut against his design and his creation. That's why he hates these things. And so wisdom is growing in the knowledge that that we know what he loves and we learn to love what he loves and whatever he is called damnable, whatever he is called abominable, whatever he is called wicked, we hate that too because he hates it. The fool, however, loves the thing that God has marked out for judgment. You know this person. We all know this person. And I'm not talking about anybody individually, but the kind of person who finds whatever is most despicable, most disgusting, most perverse, 
and embraces it because they want to be edgy or they want to be cool or they want to set themselves apart. They find whatever is the weirdest, most twisted, ugly thing, and they just wrap their arms around it. And they say, this thing that God hates, I love. It's my teddy bear. It's my, it's my precious. It's the thing that I love more than anything. The fool does that. The fool is enamored by the thing that God has issued a death sentence on. The fool keeps on life support the thing that God is putting to death. And so if there are things that God has marked out for judgment and says, I'm going to wipe all that stuff off the face of the earth. I'm going to scour the earth of that scum. And you say, oh, hold on. No, this is what I love. This is my favorite. It's like when you clean out a four-year-old's room. <laughs> you go in there with black garbage bags and the big leaf bags. And there's toys from cereal boxes. And there's Happy Meal detritus. And there's, there's stuff that somebody gave them that they just like bits and bobs and pieces of things. And I guarantee you, all this stuff that you've marked out for destruction because it's, it's worthless, they will find the mo- This is the thing. I can't throw this away. This is my favorite. I said, you haven't seen that in weeks. But this is, no, I have to have this. I can't throw this away. And that's what we do. The fool does that. God has marked it out for destruction. And we say, oh, I want to keep this. And we keep on life support things that God is ready to kill. That's what the fool does. The wise, though, recognizes what God recognizes and says, that's worthless. That's scum. That's filth. And I'm ridding the world of it. So you don't hold on to it. You don't love it. You don't Google it. You line up your heart's affections with God's affections. That's what the wise king does. The Proverbs have so much to say about work. Proverbs also talk about the sluggard who hates work. Some of the most funny images in the book of Proverbs are the Proverbs about the sluggard. Um, And the wise king is not a sluggard. Uh, The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. Um, God made us hungry, and God gave us hunger and thirst so that we would get up and do something. Can you imagine what we would be like as a human race if we never got hungry? Would we ever accomplish anything? If we we never had hunger, just that basic need to eat, if we didn't have to eat, would we accomplish anything? (laughs) What would would motivate us? As long as we had some dry thing to sleep under, I think think that would would be it. We'd, We'd be fine, at least the lazy man, certainly. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. There are some people who you have to make work just so that they can feed themselves. You have to force them. Force them to work. The lazy man always has an excuse for why he can't go to work. And these are some of the funny images I was talking about. The lazy man says, there's a lion in the road. A fierce lion is in the streets. He's always got an excuse. You're going to go to work today? Oh, no, no, no. There's a lion. There's a lion out there. There's some big reason why I can't go to work today. I can't find a job today. No, 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 not today. It's raining. I can't go to work today. I can't go find a job today. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. Y'all have done that this summer, haven't you? You've, you've turned like a door on its hinges. You just go from here to here, and your alarm goes off. And you go from here to here. And then you finally wake up at the crack of noon, and you wonder why there's no breakfast. Lunch is your breakfast, right? Are you that way? 
The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl and it wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. He's so lazy, he, he goes to get something to eat and, and he can't even bring it to his mouth. He's just, oh, I'm too lazy to eat. I can't even put this stuff in my mouth. It's a hilarious image, but it's also um, pitiful. It's pathetic. And this one. This, this one, the lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. The greatest philosophers I've ever known in my life, the wisest, most incredible philosophers who have all the conspiracies of the world worked out, have never worked an honest day in their life. They don't have jobs, and they don't take care of their families, and they don't, they don't provide, but they've got everything all worked out, and to... And to illustrate why the whole deck is stacked against them for why they can't work. Why, why, why this whole thing is just a conspiracy to keep them out of just the job that they want. And the Proverbs, this ancient literature, recognize the, the lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So to summarize that, the fool doesn't understand the value and the importance of work. There's always a reason why he can't work. He always has a scheme or a plan or solution that's hanging out there that never materializes. The wise work. They love work. Another theme in the Proverbs is the folly of sexual sin. I'm going to have to fly through these next couple, so please forgive me. The fool thinks the fool thinks he can play with fire and not get burned. The fool thinks he can flirt with danger. He can walk right up to the line and not step over it. Proverbs 6. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. So the next time your dad is grilling with coals out back on the deck, why don't you just go and reach up, get a good handful of those coals, and just try to carry them for a while and try not to get burned. That's exactly what you're doing when you flirt with sexual temptation. That's precisely what you do. Do you think you're going to end up with blisters? Do you think you're going to get hurt? You betcha. You absolutely are. And that's exactly what the Proverbs say. The wise are not easily seduced. They know how powerful those temptations are. And just like Joseph runs from Potiphar's wife, so the wise run the other way. I'll just mention one last theme, and that's the wise control of the tongue. The fool says whatever comes to her mind. There's no filter between her brain and her tongue. The fool shares secrets. He breaks confidences. He tells lies to get attention. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, Proverbs says, and they love him who speaks what is right. A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is a faithful spirit conceals a matter. The wise control their tongues. Now, if you're wise, you know these things and you hold them close to your heart. You're reminded of them when you interact with others. They echo in your mind. If you're a fool, you ignore all of this. Your mouth is just like an open sewer and it just bubbles over with all the stuff, whatever nonsense passes through your brain. If you're going to be effective and if you're going to rule wisely, if you want responsibility, embrace wisdom. One last thing you need to know about kings is that kings, as Pastor Wyndham said so well just a few minutes ago, kings are called upon to die for their people. When Jesus dies for us, he dies as a king. Jesus was acclaimed king when he got to Jerusalem. He was put on trial as a king. He was crowned with a, a, a crown of thorns as king. He had a royal robe put on his back. When he was crucified, what did it say over his head? The king of the Jews. Jesus died as our king. His throne was a cross. 
Certainly Jesus died as a priest. He offered up the only perfect sacrifice to God. But, but as we read in Hebrews last session that I led, Jesus was a priest king, like Melchizedek, who was a priest king. Jesus dies as a priest king so that we all can become priest kings. And Jesus does this by showing us what a real king is called to do. A king is called upon to give up his glory and to die for others. We only have one minute or two to explore the role of a prophet and the life and office of a prophet. Whenever God moves history from one phase to the next, there's always at least one prophet there to talk about and to and to help that transition from one era to the next. He sends his prophets to bridge the gap between worlds. Think of what John the Baptist did, bridging the gap between worlds. Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, Moses was a prophet, Samuel was a prophet. These men are called into a time of change and crisis to speak law and wisdom to the situation. And so their, their communication come in the form of letters that combine God's law and his wisdom and speak it to a new audience. The Old Covenant, first priestly period, literature was law. That's what we get first. The second phase of literature in the Bible is wisdom. In the third section of the Old Testament, what are all those things at the back of the Old Testament? Those are all letters. Those are all communications from the prophets to the nations. Sure, there's instruction for Judah, there's instruction for Israel, but there's also all this other instruction for Edom and Assyria and Babylon. They're communicating God's truth to the nations. That's what prophets do. And so when we get to the New Testament, we have the Gospels, we have Acts, which is history, and then what comes? We have more letters to cities. Paul and Peter and James are speaking, and John are speaking God's truth, his law and his wisdom to the cities of the ancient world. And so this is what a prophet does. A prophet communicates law and wisdom to new situations, to new people, to new contexts. The prophet articulates God's word, the message of the gospel, the hope of life to different cultures and contexts and societies of men. And you are living in an incredibly complicated social environment. You are living in an incredibly complex, difficult time where all, everything is off the table as far as all the things that we could assume and everything that we could just take for granted. It's all, it's all been swept off the table. It's almost like we're back in tribal times where, uh, where there's, there's, there's no understanding. If you start talking about God, people will ask you, what do you mean? What is God? You start quoting the Bible to say, that's not authoritative. So your job as prophets, as you grow into this phase after being faithful priests, and faithful kings is to learn how to take all these things you've learned and communicate them in a new way to your generation. But you will never be articulate. You will never be effective. You will never be faithful in that unless you are first faithful priests and faithful kings. There's so much more I want to say about that, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, I'm out of time and I'll save it. We'll save it for next year. We may pick up there or do something else, or we can talk about it later this afternoon. But that's my passion. What my prayer is, again, what Pastor Wyndham said just a little while ago, my passion and my interest and my prayer is that your generation grows faithfully and steadily through these phases. Be faithful priests. Look forward to the day when you can cross that threshold and become a royalty, kings who take dominion and take responsibility so that 
you can effectively communicate God's law and God's wisdom to your generation and to a complex, lost, sick, perverted, confused, dark world. That's what we're after. I, too, want you to do better things than we have done. Your parents' generation, my generation, we've been hard at work trying to build something for you to build upon. We want you to do better than us. We want you to go farther. We want you to teach us some things, to build something greater. And you will do that, again, if you're faithful priests, where you are right now. Go home and be faithful priests. Let's pray. Father, uh, again, we give you thanks for these young men and women. We thank you for all the potential and the opportunity that you have given them. We thank you for their homes, for their parents, for their friends. We thank you for their churches. We thank you that you have loved them through your son, Jesus Christ, and you have called them to be your own. You have placed your name on each one of their heads. And I pray that they will all, as they return to their homes and families, that they will consider what an important uh, calling you have put upon them as priests, that they will be faithful priests, that they'll respect boundaries, they'll know your word so well, they, they notice all the nuances and subtleties of what you've required so that they can counsel others in what you've said. Father, today we ask that if it be your will that you clear up the rain, we thank you for it. We thank you for nourishing the earth with the rain, but we do pray that you allow the sun to shine noon, uh, full of games and activities. And we pray that you would bless us, keep us, keep us healthy, keep us injury-free, we pray for the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.